Blog Talk Radio.
and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And of course, uh, today is Saturday, April 9th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners once again uh, for tuning in to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the ongoing conflict in Ukraine involving the Russian Federation, the United States, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The Malian military says it has eliminated some members of an armed rebel group fighting the government in Bamako. Gambia has voted again in an election designed to support the incumbent president, and the South African ruling ANC party says it wants to improve relations between local and national governmental structures. In the second hour, we look back on the period leading up to and following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the aftermath of the 54th anniversary of his martyrdom. Finally, we commemorate the 124th anniversary of the birth of Paul Robeson, uh, who, of course, his birthday is today, uh, April 9th of 1898, and uh, he joined the ancestors in January of 1976. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Le Amazon, uh, De Afrique, from the album entitled Republic Amazon. Let's listen in.
any supply of weapons and military equipment from the West performed by transport convoys through the territory of Ukraine is a legitimate military target for our armed forces, Antonov said. The Russian envoy also touched upon the activities of biological laboratories in Ukraine. What does the Pentagon have to do with health issues? Why are bio-laboratories established along Russian borders, thousands of kilometers away from the American territory, he, he said. Antonov uh, added that Moscow is taking the necessary steps to ensure the safety of civilians and maintain the normal operation of critical infrastructure facilities in Ukraine. The Russian Federation is taking the necessary measures to preserve life and safety of civilians, he pointed out. We do everything to maintain the normal functioning of critical infrastructure facilities to ensure law and order and the security of people. These strikes are made only on military targets and exclusively with high-precision weapons, the Russian envoy added. Also, he added that Moscow is doing everything possible in talks with Kiev in order uh, to end military activities and restore peace in Donbass. Russia is doing everything possible to negotiate a path to the prompt completion of the confrontation, the restoration of peace in Donbass, and the return of all peoples of Ukraine to peaceful life, he stressed. Our principal position regarding the settlement of the conflict has been clearly defined, Antonov added. According to him, it includes the demand for an unconditional consideration of Russia's security interests, the demilitarization and denazification of the Ukrainian state, ensuring its neutral and non-nuclear status, as well as the recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk people's republics. According to Antonov, the goal of the operation is to put an end to the genocide perpetuated, uh, perpetrated uh, by the Kiev regime and ensure a nuclear-free and neutral status of Ukraine. The policy of our country is based on the right for all peoples living today in the Ukrainian territory to choose their own future, Antonov added. He also noted that together we need to get rid of the nationalists who seize power in Kiev as soon as possible turn this tragic page and move forward to build mutually respectful and equal reactions, equal relations, uh, the Russian ambassador continued. According to uh, Russian Defense Ministry spokesman, Major Igor Konashevkov, evidence was unearthed uh, during Russia's special military operation that the Kiev regime had urgently eliminated traces of a U.S. Department of Defense-funded military biological program in Ukraine. Ukrainian laboratory staffers testified that on February 24th, pathogens of plague, anthrax, pleurema, cholera, and other deadly diseases have been urgently eliminated. On February the 24th, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation based on a request from the heads of the Donbass republics. The Russian leader stressed that Moscow had no plans to occupy Ukrainian territories and the goal was to demilitarize and denazify the country. In response, the West introduced major sanctions against Moscow, in fact, unleashing an economic war on Russia. And on the African continent in the Western region, 19 so-called terrorists and three armed groups uh, have been eliminated by the Malian forces in operations against jihadists since March the 22nd. That's the military uh, saying this in a statement. Uh, it confirmed the, quote, neutralization 
uh, four terrorists in the Neono zone, unquote, in the center of the country, as well as the elimination of, quote, three armed terrorist groups, unquote, in the Bali force, and, quote, 15 terrorists, unquote, in uh, Mafun, uh, Vanukwe, and Mariaku sectors. Now, the international press uh, has not been able to verify the death toll given by the Malian military, whose statements issued uh, late Thursday did not announce any losses among its own ranks. The number is in addition to the 203 fighters the military said it had killed in a large-scale operation in the Mora region in March. Witnesses interviewed by media and Human Rights Watch have spoken of large-scale massacres of civilians in Mora. The Human Rights Watch had said 300 were killed by Malian soldiers and foreign fighters. Ruled by a military junta uh, since August of 2020, Mali has been in turmoil uh, since uh, the last decade. Jihadist attacks have spread from the north to the center of the country and to neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger. UN mission in Mali, um, my NUSMA, uh, says nearly 600 civilians were killed in 2021 in violence blamed mainly on jihadist groups, but also on vigilante groups and the armed forces. Mali's military judiciary on Wednesday announced the opening of an investigation into the recent events in Mara. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Gambian voters uh, are voting for lawmakers uh, today in legislative elections that should consolidate uh, the system and may see President Adama Baro strengthen his power after winning re-election last year. Voters in the tiny uh, West African state will renew the unicameral National Assembly's 58 seats for a five-year term. The single-round vote will choose 53 lawmakers, while Beryl, serving a second five-year term after last December's electoral victory, will name the five others, including the Parliament's president. Polling stations are due to open at 8 a.m. and close at 5 p.m. An uneventful month of campaigning concluded uh, two days ago, and results are expected uh, tomorrow. Uh, voting for a new constitution seen as essential uh, by the Gambia's international partners to strengthen its governance system and limit the president's power. Uh, they say this will be key, a key task for the new legislature. Uh, Barrow unexpected victory against now-exiled uh, President uh, Yaya Jame in the country's 2016 presidential vote ended a 20-year tenure. And, of course, uh, he promised to introduce constitutional change that is Barrow, uh, by the end of his term. But in September of 2020, the outgoing parliament rejected a draft constitution that limited uh, the president to two terms. Barrow's supporters opposed the retroactive nature of the provision, which would have prevented the head of state from running again in 2026. The President National People's Party, created in 2020, after the breakup of the coalition that brought Barrow to power, is pushing for a parliamentary majority. The United Democratic Party, the opposition formation which dominates the current chamber, is led by Sanu Dabo, an unsuccessful challenger to Barrow in last December's presidential election. The opposition and other organizations have accused Barrow of illegally supporting his party's candidates by using state resources during a national campaign tour. And uh, 
finally, an environmental NGO uh, is sounding the alarm bells over new international legislation that would impact rural communities across Africa. Resource Africa said that the United Kingdom's government was looking at to introduce a newly proposed bill on animals, which would have a major knock-on effect on communities whose livelihoods would be affected. The Animals Abroad Bill would have an impact on hunting, animal rights, and human needs. The organization's representative, Shylock Yanguas, said that a quick statistic of the impact is mostly a lot of the income coming from these communities is 80% on hunting. So directly, this affects the ability of these communities to fund their health, as well as their education and other welfare programs. And also, including this uh, segment, Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister, and Kosasani Kwamini Zuma in the Republic of South Africa says service delivery issues will improve once there is a coherent relationship between local and national government in South Africa. Kwamini Zuma says national government has come up with an inclusive plan to address the issues. The minister highlighted this at the second post state of the nation address presidential Ibiso held in Bloemfontein earlier today. She said that we met with the traditional leaders, we met with the workers, we met with the businesses, we met with some of the NGOs because the district development model must include everyone, every stakeholder, because government does have the monopoly, does not have the monopoly of ideas. Monguan residents uh, have been speaking with President Cyril Ramaphosa on the challenges they face daily, including the lack of service delivery. They've called on the government to intervene. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 9th, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that URL is blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, the music of uh, Howard Tate and the song entitled Stop. And uh, we're going to uh, pick up uh, from our last program, uh, looking at the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, some 54 uh, years ago uh, this month. And uh, this is uh, a series of tapes uh, in the aftermath and also leading up uh, to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, let's listen in. Be smart, be strong, be quick. This is a pretty incredible experience. There's always more to see. Several thousand Negro demonstrators are participating in this largest civil rights demonstration ever in Memphis, Tennessee. Today, as the march moves up towards City Hall, Dr. Martin Luther King will speak to the striking workers and their sympathizers, now estimated somewhere between five and 8,000. Chaos has just broken out downtown. Negro youth are smashing windows. What is the condition of the city? The city is under attack. WMBS headline news of 8:25. Dick Weijan reporting, Washington. U.S. authorities have revealed a shortage of bombs in South Vietnam is curtailing air attacks on the Viet Cong. The president has frequently interrupted his day-long conference on Vietnam problems to stay in close touch with the volatile racial disorders throughout the nation. The bombs in Vietnam exploded home. They destroyed the dream and possibility for a decent America. Let us close the springs of racial poison and make our nation whole. The most massive series of demonstrations ever attempted is the promise of Dr. Martin Luther King, leader of a planned April civil disobedience drive in Washington. I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. I will die standing up for the freedom of my people. And headline news from Radio Memphis, WMPS. Here's the WMPS weather scope for Memphis in the Mid-South. Considerable cloudiness and mild scattered showers through early Tuesday. Partly cloudy continued mild Tuesday afternoon through Wednesday. The low tonight 55, the high Tuesday 75, and the low Tuesday night 50. Present barometric pressure 29.7.
This is Ray Sherman, United Press International in Memphis. 1,000 striking sanitation workers demanded Mayor Henry Loeb hear their grievances. The garbage collectors, predominantly Negro, want higher pay and union recognition. We are insisting that justice must be done for the sanitation workers. All their just and fair demands must be met. And that at the same time, both private business and city government must provide a greater percentage of new and important jobs to Negroes. This work stoppage directly affects the public health. Let no one make a mistake about it. The garbage is going to be picked up in Memphis. I recognize Local 1733 as the broadening representative for employees designating exclusive or otherwise. Well, no, he doesn't not... want to recognize a union. The Memphis chapter of the NAACP says the civil rights group will begin protest actions Monday unless the city meets demands of striking garbage collectors. Police used riot control gas and nightsticks this afternoon to break up a disturbance among a group of striking garbage men. Part of a group of about 1,000 marchers began rocking a police car, and police waited in. If I were the mayor of this city, I would be ashamed. Anybody who runs around picking on peaceful people is building for trouble. We probably cannot expect protection of Negro people from brutality and from repression locally. The ear and the power outside of the city of Memphis. in support of the city's striking sanitation workers. So I come to commend you, and I come also to say to you that in this struggle you have the absolute support, and that means financial support also, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. All over America, the vast majority of Negroes in our country are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. And it is criminal to have people working at a full-time job getting part-time income. If the men do not return to work immediately, we will have no choice but to employ others to protect the public health.
This is Ray Sherman on the scene. Several thousand Negro demonstrators are participating in this largest civil rights demonstration ever in Memphis, Tennessee. This massive downtown march on Memphis is now underway. Several thousand Negroes are marching toward City Hall at this time. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. Later today, as the march moves up toward City Hall, Dr. Martin Luther King will speak to the striking workers and their sympathizers, now estimated somewhere between five and 8,000. Police are on hand with about 600 officers. Almost the entire force is standing by here in case any trouble might break out. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right. Negro youth are smashing windows. I just saw. That sound you just heard was the sound of a tear gas fired by a police officer in an attempt to thwart this unruly demonstration. We repeat, several Negro youth started running down Main Street, smashing windows as they ran. Police are now moving down Beale Street. Another tear gas canister has just been fired by Memphis police. Negroes are running in every direction. Probably some more glass breakage in the downtown section of Memphis. The tear gas is boiling up from the street, and the Negro youths are fleeing from the area. Police are scrambling down Peel Street now. There's been a call of help from other officers. Officers are in trouble. The Negro youths are shouting at this time, go. Go, go. Police have formed a cordon, and they're not permitting the march to move any further at this point. They're moving in with riot guns and tear gas canisters. Here comes the tear gas, and this reporter just got a sting of it. Main Street is littered with pickets. Nearly every store has had its windows shattered. There's no doubt one of the worst disturbances that have ever occurred in Memphis. This is Ray Sherman on the scene again. There went another tear gas canister. Some youths still hurling objects at officers. Police now have cordoned off the area around Claiborne Temple where this massive demonstration that went wild and crazy began earlier today. Many of the Negro demonstrators have taken refuge inside the church from the tear gas that still fills the air. And inside, the leaders are appealing to the Negro youths and militants to stop and desist from this disorder and violence that has occurred in Memphis. You obviously had a group of boys who were ready to do that, and they did it. They didn't come to the march. They didn't consult us. They're outside of our control, absolutely. Always have been. And this time they got their chance to break loose, and they took it. What happened with Dr. King? Well, we surrounded him with some ministers and moved him out of the area. In an undisclosed location. Yeah. Do you think this event today will have any effect on the city government taking any different type of action than they have on the strike? Oh, you can't allow this sort of terror and disruption to go on in a city like ours. You can be sure it'll have an effect. When the march, which was to be permitted, 
Had it remained orderly, degenerated into a riot, abandoned by its leaders, the police, with my full sanction, took the necessary action to protect the lives and property of the citizens of Memphis. There is hereby ordered and invoked a curfew which requires all citizens to be off the streets of the city of Memphis by 7 p.m. tonight and remain off the streets until 5 a.m. Persons on the streets during these hours who do not have legitimate business or emergency reasons will be subject to arrest. What needs to be done will be done. be 4,000 troops in this city by 6 p.m. and the governor's message is that he is going to maintain law and order. We should not let fear get the best of us and we're going to stop this thing and see that peace comes back to this community. These troops are armed. Are they uh, carrying ammunition? Uh, yes. Here they protect themselves of course. If the situation demands it they, they will return the fire. General, do you have any idea of uh, what the cost is of this operation to the taxpayers of Tennessee? Yeah, no, I'd be afraid to make a guess offhand. It's no small cost. Governor Buford Ellington has ordered 4,000 National Guardsmen into the city. He has also ordered 200 riot-trained state patrolmen to Memphis and has placed an additional 8,000 Guardsmen on standby alert at armories near Memphis. The National Guard has been called in. We've had looting and burning and several police officers have been hurt. We're trying to get it under control at this time, but at this time it's spreading. Was it spontaneous or planned? Well, it was very much uh, spontaneous. I think we better go on record as saying anyway. Uh, that was first... You mean it was not spontaneous, but on the record you want to say it's spontaneous? Well, I think it was just left these, these problems just iron themselves out, however people want to take it. Black people are tired. Your group had nothing to do then with trying to take over Dr. King's march yesterday. Well, I can't, I can't actually say concretely whether we... Uh, we're glad to see the city of Memphis wake up to reality. honestly say that demonstration here yesterday was something that I had no part in planning. Uh, I was invited here by the leadership uh, to take part, and we came cold. We didn't know all of the factors involved. I came here to make a speech two weeks ago where some 15,000 people assembled, and I assumed that some of the ideological struggles that we find in most cities over the nation, particularly in the North, were non-existent here. Riots are here. Riots are a part of the ugly atmosphere of our society now. And I would rather put my time and place my energy into getting rid of these conditions because as long as they're here, they're going to produce angry people. 
we're still having isolated incidents of vandalism and some fires, but certainly there's a tremendous uh, decrease, and I think this is due in part to the Guard being present and uh, a heavier patrol. I'm convinced that nonviolence is the way and that violence is not the answer. Does that mean there will be no more violence in Memphis? Well, I can't guarantee that uh, there will be no more violence after we leave and go to Washington. I'm simply saying that uh, we are going to have a nonviolent demonstration here. Dr. King, where are your plans? I will be leaving Memphis later today, going back to Atlanta, and my next step would be to come back to Memphis. And that, we hope, can take place in the next two or three days. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in minutes. I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. I left Atlanta this morning and then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Shot. Okay, taxi advising King has been shot. 604. 
Tag 11, do you want us to pull down? Deck Tag 11 to pull down. Okay, Tag 11. Uh, area. A signal Q, a signal Q. All tank units on the call, you are to form a ring around the Lorraine Hotel. You are to form a ring around the Lorraine Hotel. No one is to enter or leave. Next here we have information that the shot came from a brick building directly east across, uh, correction, west from the Lorraine. Okay, Tag 10 has information the shot was fired from a brick building directly across from the Lorraine on the east side. Directly across from the Lorraine on the east side from a brick building, 606. All units, that's all units, 154 advise and all tag units to seal this area off completely. There's a weapon in front of 424 and the subject ran south on Main Street. Down on Main Street, the subject responsible for the shooting is running south on Main Street. The subject ran south from that location, 607. Not to touch the weapon, the weapon is not to be touched, 607. Repeating information, the subject ran south on Main from 424. A young white male, well-dressed, a young white male, well-dressed, ran south from 424 at South Main, 608. With information, the subject may be in a late model white Mustang, a late model white Mustang north on Main Street, 610. The doctor ready to go, he said, um, so yes, just to say, let's get ready to go right now. You did hear a shot. You know, we heard what sounded just like a firecracker, a loud, real, a real loud shot. I said, Dr. King, that was it. And the bullet exploded in his face. And he had fallen backwards. I heard somebody holler, oh, Lord. The bullet knocked him up off of his feet in that direction against that ledger over there. Did Dr. King say anything? He didn't say anything. He just, he didn't say anything at all. It's a hectic scene tonight. A bullet struck Dr. King in the back of the neck. He was rushed to St. Joseph Hospital in critical condition. Dr. Martin Luther King was received in the emergency room at St. Joseph Hospital at approximately 6.15 p.m. Well, I just was told that he had been shot. The report I got was in the shoulder. It was serious. That was the report I got from Reverend Andrew Young. He is in the emergency room and he is in critical condition. And there was, oh, 20 or 30 doctors. And they tried external heart massage and his respiration muscles were paralyzed and everything else was paralyzed. And he lost all his sensation. He still didn't have any blood. You understand, really a massive wound. I've never seen a wound like this. 7.05 p.m., April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King is pronounced dead.
that occurred last week, or do you think that, you know, that this is a continuation of it? I just have no, no idea why anybody would want to shoot Dr. King. God knows this is the most tragic thing that has ever happened in, in my life. I cannot in any way try to describe to you the pain and the shock that I feel or this very dreary and moment in the life of this city and the life of this nation and in my own personal life. The pathology and the sickness and the neurosis of, of Memphis and of this racist society in which we live is that that really pulled the trigger. To some extent, Dr. King has been a buffer the last few years between the black community and the white community. The white people do not know it, but the white people's best friend is dead. here in Memphis to stay in your homes tonight and rather than break windows or shoot or hate go on your knees and pray to God that we might live for the things for which Martin Luther King Jr. died. In Memphis the manhunt continues. Police are looking for a young, well-dressed man seen leaving a brick building across the street from the Lorraine Hotel. One second. One second. We have one of these mobile units at Jackson Hollywood. He states that he's talking to some fella following a Mustang. He's stolen someone from Highland. Get a license number. No license number. Okay, white male is he stolen someone from Highland. London, a white Mustang responsible for this shooting. 36. by the Memphis Police Department, Mr. Holloman, Chief McDonald, Director Armour, and myself, that a, an emergency situation does exist. And at this time, we're asking that all people of Memphis and Shelby County observe, and as we put into effect our curfew, we request that all persons, unless it's absolutely an emergency to be on the street, to go to their homes and stay there and, until uh, tomorrow when things hopefully will be in a better situation. What is the condition of the city? The city is under attack. 
killed Martin Luther King as I am concerned about what killed Martin Luther King. Nationwide slum rioting has claimed more than 30 lives and damage is running into countless millions. Memphis Mayor Henry Loeb has declared Friday, Saturday and Sunday to be days of community mourning in Memphis. Flags will be flown in half mast during this time. Police are still seeking the young white man who assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thursday night at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis. Mr. Holloman, are you holding a suspect right now, sir? No, sir. Do you have a material witness, sir? No, sir. Do you feel like you're the Department gave proper protection Dr. There was 25 to 30 officers in the immediate area. The protection was so close that one of the officers actually saw Dr. King when he was struck by the bullet. It would have been impossible to have prevented a sniper assassin to have accomplished his purpose. How could he get away with so many men in the area? That's the question that we're trying to establish at this time. The Attorney General offered his complete assistance of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the investigation of this crime. President Johnson, with his Honolulu high-level conference held in abeyance by the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King, will meet with unspecified civil rights leaders today at the White House. Meanwhile, Attorney General Ramsey Clark and three other federal officials have flown to Memphis. We have no evidence that there was a widespread plot. The evidence at this time indicates that uh, it was the act of a single individual. There are a number of items of physical evidence, uh, more than you ordinarily have in a crime in a situation of this type at this time in an investigation. The gun itself and the projectile are in Washington and are under laboratory scrutiny at this time. That's all I can say on that. Can you tell us how far your investigation is spreading? How far away can you tell us? It will spread as far as the evidence takes us and it has spread some several hundred miles from the borders of Tennessee at this time. Police in Memphis remain mum on their investigation of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Here is what police know but say little about. They're seeking a 30-year-old white man who spoke with a southern drawl and called himself John Willard. Their indications authorities already know his real name. In a related development, a 20-year-old Memphis Negro youth died early today and became the city's first victim of the Thursday night rioting in Memphis touched off by the assassination of Dr. King. Scott Peters, United Press International, the White House. President Johnson was briefed this morning at 4 a.m. and again at 6.30 on the situation surrounding the rioting and looting since Thursday night. Washington looks like a city at war, and it is. There are something like 4,000 troops in the city, and tanks rumble through the streets. A machine gun post was set up on Capitol Hill. Black smoke can be seen billowing into the air in many parts of northwest Washington, some of the trouble just three blocks from the White House. President Johnson has issued a proclamation declaring this Sunday as the National Day of Mourning throughout America. our mayor and city council 
to address themselves with swift dispatch to the mutually acceptable solution, we are persuaded that only when a spirit of flexibility and goodwill dominates can true peace and progress come to our city. So, Honorable Mayor, I feel deeply that the apostle, the greatest apostle of peace in this decade, this age, has died. I feel that if any constructive and stabilizing uh, forces are to come on the scene, it will have to come from my white brother, you. And it is in this spirit that you can speak most effectively and constructively. You're a human being too. And, and somehow we've got to communicate to you as a man. Mr. Mayor, this is the third time I've come to you pleading. If we had been able to get a hearing as ministers of the black community, we never would have needed to send for King or anybody else. Mrs. King arrived. We met with her briefly on the airplane. We expressed for the president, for our government, for ourselves and the nation, our profound sorrow. They're now slowly rolling the gold casket containing the body of Dr. Martin Luther King into the chartered airplane sent to Memphis by Senator Robert Kennedy. Police here have had a difficult time controlling the crowds that are gathered around the plane. The funeral will be Tuesday. Dr. King's planned march in Memphis Monday will be carried out. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who is destined to become the new leader of Dr. King's Southern Leadership Conference, has announced we will return Monday. The body of Dr. Martin Luther King has been returned to his home city of Atlanta. It's a gray, overcast day here in Memphis as thousands of the city's Negroes gather to march in the interrupted sanitation men's demonstration. The march is running a bit later than planned due to the late arrival of Mrs. King, who was held up in Atlanta's airport because of fog. It seems like at 10 minutes of 11 that the march is just about ready to get underway. It's an extremely large crowd. Leading the procession, the widow of the late Dr. Martin Luther King and her three children, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King's successor, Harry Belafonte, United Auto Workers President Walter Ruther, and other union leaders. The number of marches previously estimated between uh, 8 to 15,000 by various sources 
may be closer to 30 or 40,000. Local police have devised the tightest security measures ever imposed on the city. Off they step now, black and white, out here today because the leader had a dream they intend to make real. They walk in total silence, an almost unbelievable eerie quiet. John Chambers, United Press International on Capitol Hill. While Martin Luther King's funeral procession filed through the streets of Atlanta, the House Rules Committee sent the 1968 Civil Rights Bill to the floor for action. That could come Scott tomorrow. Peters, United Press International, the White House. President Johnson has signed the Civil Rights Bill of 1968. Now with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. In an East Room ceremony, the president made the bill, with its controversial fair housing section, the law of the land. The city of Memphis recognizes the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees as the designated representative in the Division of Public Works. Go ahead, Brother Jones, take the vote. All in favor of recordation, let it be known by saying I. And we're not going to let. I'm telling you now on the behalf of these preachers, we're not going to forget the fact that we're bound by the blood of Martin Luther King as well as by the sweat and toil that we've all given. that only one man was involved. 
knowing as an example how efficiently our police can block off would-be bank robbers from getting out of the city. We'd like to know how one man committing a crime with the police on the scene within two minutes could nonetheless get out of the city by himself. Do you feel that James Earl Ray could have planned this thing and executed and done it completely by himself? I think so. My position is that we have no evidence of a conspiracy. There were several indications in his background that he was anti-Negro and anti-Semitic. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, outtake uh, surrounding uh, the period leading up to and afterwards and during the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 54 years ago this month. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, April 9th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of our program. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and right now we want to pay tribute uh, to the birthday of uh, Paul Robeson, uh, who was born on this day in 1898, and uh, he made his transition in 1976. Paul Robeson, a pioneering artist, uh, social scientist, public intellectual, and uh, human rights advocate, a fighter uh, for the freedom and liberation of black people and all people throughout the world. Uh, let's listen to a tribute uh, to Paul Robeson, uh, his son, Paul Robeson Jr., speaking on the state of oppression uh, that, of course, attacked uh, Paul Robeson. Let's listen in. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'd like to try to put my father's persecution in a context to show the continuity between then and now. Um, I can speak with some authority because uh, I've also been a target of both COINTELPRO and MKUltra. I've uh, been more fortunate than most. I'm still here and healthy. 
most people who have had that experience are no longer with us. Um, in terms of a context, the people who did that to my father and to me are part of what I call the permanent government. They have been here since before the Civil War. They were responsible for the assassination of Lincoln, of Kennedy, and many, many more. They have been responsible for starting wars, for covert operations that have tried to start wars. They have been involved in assassinations of foreign uh, diplomats and heads of state and on and on and on. Contrary to the mythology, the most important part of that secret government is run out of a secret operation in the Defense Department, out of Defense Intelligence, which gets 80% of the budget. That's where the ball game is. That's why the 9-11 Commission focused on a czar who would extract the budget and control from the Defense Department. The CIA is small stuff. However, they're coordinated, and um, the real dirty work is done by something called the Field Operations Unit of Military Intelligence. Now, those people are around because they come from a special segment of the American population since before the Civil War. They belong to a specific ethnic group and a regional group they are part of an elite in this country that used to call itself the WASP Ascendancy. The ethnic <coughs> designation is English and German, otherwise known as Anglo-Saxon. They used to call themselves WASPs, but that's no longer in vogue. Uh, they have a predominantly southern center of gravity, wealthy, and fundamentalist Protestant. WASP stands for White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Since Anglo-Saxons are already white, that's double white Protestant, meaning super white. They are the cousins, if not the brothers, in constituency and culture of Hitler's Nazis out of southern Germany, specifically down around Bavaria and Austria, is where Hitler came from. That's the core of the Nazi tradition. And the cultures and outlooks of the tradition of Hitler in Germany and the Confederacy in the United States are almost identical. And if you read Mein Kampf, you will read Hitler's compliments to, you know, if the... Americans get their stuff together and go Confederate-wise, they'll be just like us. Now, it's hidden, and nobody talks about ethnicity in this country for that very reason. They were the core of the slave owners. And let's say I have a special bias against them because I happen to be the grandson of not just a slave, but a field slave. And that's some difference between a freedman and a house slave and a skilled slave. So that struggle has been going on for generations. 
And America has always been two, not one. That's what John Edwards is talking about, two Americas. One America is simply enough the tradition of the Confederacy. The other is the tradition of the Union. Now, both of them are led by was, one Lincoln and one Jefferson Davis. Difference night and day. The progressive America is Lincoln, Roosevelt, Kennedy. The reactionary America is Jefferson Davis, Ronald Reagan, and Bush one and two, especially two. Anglo-Saxon, okay, Southern, in Bush's case sort of transferred from north to south, but Southern core, fundamentalist Protestant, and wealthy. Slave owners updated, and what you're looking at is something like a neo-confederacy. That's what's going on. Now, my father, the son of a field slave, fought that America to the death from day one. And, well, I try to continue with that tradition. That is the enemy, capital E. Either one America or the other will triumph in the end. That's what the Civil War is about, and it's still going on. This crisis is similar to the Civil War and other crises between the two Americas, and it's choose-up time. That's what is happening. Now, my father was point man for the progressive America. Anti-war, opposed three of them. Cold War, Korean War, Vietnam War. He's talking about, I'm looking for freedom, full freedom. Now, not an inferior bread. Either or. There's no such thing as half freedom. And secondly, to add to culture and race, the issue of class. Yeah, I'm for the meek inherit the earth means they take it. And right now, class is big time, in case you hadn't noticed, although you can't say that you say working families, but don't you dare say working class, or you can't get elected dog catcher because you're some kind of socialist, communist, or whatever. However, this country is two Americas, 80% below $75,000 a year, and 20% above $75,000 a year. Well, that's the issue. The countries now run for the top 20%, actually the top 10 or so, 15, blacks included, and other 80% later for them. Well, the 80% time has come, and that's a big issue among black folks. So you're talking about class, race, and culture all together. You can't leave any of them out. And the fourth leg of the chair is peace. Because if you got some liberals running around, well, they're Cold War liberals. Well, we'll do guns and butter. We've got to fight either communism or terrorism or whatever abroad and establish some kind of empire. They're going to deep-six everything progressive. No, you can't have progressive domestic policy and a, a warlike or imperial foreign policy and have a decent anything at home and you don't believe it, look what Truman did with his, he started the Cold War, and Johnson, the war on poverty, turned out to be a kind of a half measure. Because black folks, minorities, poor folks were not empowered. Was against that background that for centuries, 
they've gone after the progressives. And by great, I mean, let's say, Tom Paine, who said against slavery, etc., etc. Now, Jefferson's a slave owner, so that's a big difference. So read Tom Paine and then read the Declaration of Independence, and you'll see the difference. The difference. So my father, 40, 50 years ago, is way out on the progressive side, point man. So he was lucky to survive at all. Now, they began going after him under Pro, that's the FBI, under a progressive president, Roosevelt, who even with all his power couldn't get rid of Hoover. Hoover more or less did what he wanted, law or no law. So he started going after Dad when he was at the height of his popularity in the 1940s. Ballot for Americans, Bard of Liberty, Herald of Freedom, Othello, All-American, I mean, he was everything. They called him America's number one Negro, whatever that's worth. In any case, guests at the White House, all this. Hoover busy not only surveillance, but bugged his apartment, bugged his phone, on and on, followed him around, etc. This is 1940. Come 1946, there's a Cold War. And Dad has nerve enough to go down to Washington, D.C., by the way, co-chairman of the campaign for uh, crusade against lynching was Albert Einstein, no less. So they go down to ask Truman and lynching. Oh, no, Truman said, I can't do that because it's a political issue, the time isn't right, and so on. Well, that's it's a moral issue. And by the way, Mr. President, I must say, if the federal government can't protect black folks in the South, maybe... Uh, Veterans down there will have to defend themselves. Then you'll have to send federal troops there. So Truman jumps up, shakes his finger. That sounds like a threat. He's all red in the face. And dead, all six feet three, 240 pounds, still athletic, slowly gets up from his seat. And the Secret Service men on either side of the president's desk they jump out to the side of the desk, open up the jackets, show the 45. And they're just standing there. And somebody in the delegation other than that said, well, we meant no, no uh, threat to the president. And Dad said, of course not. Uh, I meant no disrespect to the office of the presidency. I just was expressing how black folks who are 10% of the population feel. So Truman spotted, okay, this meeting's over. So this is headline, Robeson and Truman go at it. And from the Freedom of Information Act documents I got, it's right after that meeting, President Truman calls in General Vaughn, who's his military aide, and says, uh, this Robeson fella, uh, he's getting to be kind of a problem. Why don't you, why don't you tell J. Edgar Hoover to kind of keep tabs on it? Now that means Hoover has license to help the president solve his problem. And we know what that is. Well, by some coincidence, this is 46, right after that, that's called by the House on American Activities Committee. He tells them to go, well, I won't quote it, but he was a lawyer, so he wound him around his finger. But in the meantime, suddenly 
he's picketing after a concert. He picketed a segregated uh, movie theater in St. Louis. And on the way to another town with a friend of his, the left front wheel of the car comes off on the highway. Well, fortunately, they weren't going too fast. And nothing happened. But if you're going fast and the left wheel comes off, you swerve into the oncoming traffic. You're very dead. And that happens to be a signature of the FBI. Their hits are by retired FBI people who, some of whom, they have this way you sabotage, oh, it's easy to sabotage the wheel. You loosen up the, the things so that the, the wheel comes off when the, when the speed comes up. Um, and then in the 1950s, there were two more such incidents. Of course, that's no longer under Truman. That's under Eisenhower, who's a liberal Republican. Well, if you recall, he says, watch out for the military-industrial complex. He's talking about these people whom he can't control. Okay, so flash forward to Kennedy. There's the first Irish Catholic ever to be president. And he's talking about, if you read his inaugural address carefully, he's talking about peace. Say the real enemy is disease, poverty, and war itself. So he's talking about ending the Cold War. And on top of that, he says there's a line in which he says a free nation that cannot protect its rich, that, that cannot help its poor, cannot save its rich. Well, that was his death mark. I mean, especially Irish Catholic can't do that. Okay. So this is the people that uh, did the following to my father. It's MK Ultra now, because Cointelpro didn't work. That was all kinds of psychological warfare and so on. That just didn't work. They tried to discredit him by spreading lies about him, etc., etc. So I don't go into the details of that. That's going to be in my second volume. But they decided they needed to do, let's say, a little more effective neutralization measures. So it's a program called MKUltra, where the CIA developed under Helms and Alan Dulles a program for using a special drug, later known as LSD, hallucinogenic drug, which if you drop a little and, and give somebody a Mickey Finn with that, the, re the reaction, the chemical reaction is such that extreme depression and uh, people get so depressed and frightened and whatnot, they usually commit suicide. And then, of course, they had a depression, terrible, you know. Well, there was an incident in 1961. My father was abroad. He'd gotten his passport, couldn't travel to China and elsewhere like Cuba and uh, China and a couple of other countries. He had never been to Africa. He wanted to go there. So he, since he's under surveillance in London, decided, well, he'd been abroad four or five years, time to go home and join the civil rights movement, so he's going to violate the passport regulations, go to Africa and then China, and on the way back, Fidel Castro had invited him to drop it at Havana, so he decided he'd do that. The problem was 
you couldn't do that from London too well, because not only the CIA and military intelligence, but London's the British MI6 is something like these American people. That's under Tony Blair these days. He's brought them back big time, um, even though he's a labor person. But in any case, Dad wisely says, well, I'll go to Moscow and take off from there. Problem was that it was a few weeks before the Bay of Pigs. So these characters thinking, well, if we hit the beaches and Robeson's sitting in Havana with Castro, it's not too good. So since Robeson's in Moscow anyway, uh, what better place to take him out than in Moscow? Then Egg will be on the face of the KGB besides. Nobody will believe that. So essentially that's what happened. There was a party in his quarters, and somebody gave him a Mickey Finn. He slashed his wrist, but not somehow he didn't uh, do it enough. They caught him early, and by the time my mother and I got there, he was fine. I mean, not fine, but he was in pretty good shape. He recovered, and the Soviet doctors wisely said the best place for him is at home in Harlem among his own people because, strangely enough, they will hit him there. If he's wandering around abroad, he's asking for it. So Dad, I have three minutes, so I'll wind up. Dad made the mistake of going back to London to pick up his things. And I made the mistake of, uh, on my own, because I was young and stupid then, deciding I'm going to investigate on my own what happened to Dad, which they warned me is strange times. Don't do that. Oh, I'm big and bad. Anyway, something similar happened to me, but I was fortunate I walked away from it. But then I couldn't take him home. So they hit him in London again, and he wound up in a London psychiatric hospital, where under a program which is an extension of MK Ultra, their MI6 British colleagues arranged for him to get 54 electroshock treatments in a hurry. That's enough to knock out an elephant, but he still had enough left to really make a pretty good recovery when he came home, was starting to get back into public life when he got hit again. <coughs> And that was it was enough not to knock him out entirely. But that was his retirement. And he decided, well, uh, he was not going to be in public in that shape. Let him remember me the way I, I am. And he suffered for, well, maybe 15 years in that shape and gritted his teeth, never complained. Well, his legacy is important because the same people around now doing the same tricks from 9-11 to New Orleans. That's why the folks are staying there, because the idea is the way you get rid of the poor, especially in the ghetto, is called ghetto removal. That's what's going on. So it is choose-up time, and my time is up, so we'll leave the rest of the question period. But I would say what happened then is happening now in a different guise. And what we need is to decide and make clear who the enemy is and fight them like we did in the Civil War 
in the 1930s and mm -hmm. in the 1960s. This time, let's pick up where Martin left off, Memphis and the Poor People's Campaign this time. And among right. our own folks, it's time to choose up who's going to bell the cat and who isn't, and especially who serves the enemy. We should not allow our folks to do that politically. Welcome back, and that was uh, Paul Wilson, Jr., uh, talking about uh, the issues uh, involved in the uh, neutralization of his father, Paul Robeson, Sr. And let's hear from the man himself. This is an interview uh, with Paul Robeson over KPFA in 1958, before the incident uh, that Paul Robeson, Jr. described in 1961. The following program is brought to you by the Pacifica Program Service and Radio Archives. I have in the studio with me Paul Robeson, who needs no introduction, and Harold Winkler, who is president of Pacifica Foundation, which operates KPFA, as most of you know. Uh, Mr. Robeson has been known and loved as an artist all over the world for many years, but he has also, I believe, uh, attracted considerable and worldwide attention in his role as a world citizen and as a person who was uh, very deeply concerned about the society in which he lived. I wonder, Mr. Robeson, if we could kick off by asking, uh, when did you first become involved in the <laughs> political aspects of May I first say how, how, how happy I am and privileged to be with you here and how deeply I thank uh, this station for its kindness throughout the years. I've been on two or three others this time, but always have been, uh, know I've had a welcome here, so I want to thank you. I would say, as I indicate in a recent book, which is now out, it will be on the stand pretty soon, Here I Stand, story of my life as I tell it, not too autobiographical. It began when I was a a little boy in Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> Strange to say. I would, uh, technically, this is the shaping of my views. Uh, a Negro boy born in Princeton, New Jersey, in a college town uh, where the students mainly came from the Deep South. You know, Princeton and Princeton, Harvard, and Yale was the sort of the Southern University of the North, whether you know that or not. And so I grew up in Jersey in a rather Southern atmosphere. And so, and my father was a minister, and I was shaped against that background. Uh, technically, I entered the sort of the arena in the United States of fighting for social justice for my people in a concert, when I was in a concert in St. Louis in 1947, in the Post-Dispatch, where I was singing uh, at the Keele Auditorium, uh, one of the big auditoriums there, and the NAACP asked me in St. Louis at that time to come on a picket line because Negro people could not even sit in the theater, which was just across the street. And so I grabbed a, uh, a, uh, a banner, and lo and behold, I saw Walter Houston coming down the street. He was in the play. So Walter walked out and joined the picket line, too. <laughs> and a few nights later, when I was doing the concert, I said that I could not quite resolve the contradiction between uh, singing to an audience in St. Louis, where there was no segregation, of course, but, but also uh, the same people uh, had not, to my mind, were not fighting to see that my people could sit in the theater. It's been corrected since. And so I said that I was giving up my career technically for the moment 
to enter the realm of the day-to-day -day struggle of the Negro people especially. And this was your first political uh, action? That, no, that was within this context. This is very important to get in the context. My first actual, to come back to your question, was in London in 1933. It isn't very well known, which I clarify in the book, that I went to play showboat in London in 1928. Jerry Curran was with me and Oscar Hammerstein, and we had a great success. And then I did concerts in 1928, and I became domiciled and lived in England, domiciled there, paid my taxes there from 1928 until 1940, after the war began. Does this mean, Mr. Robeson, <clears throat> that you spent most of your time in England during this period? It meant that I came back now and then for concerts. I was here in Oakland many times, but I went back and spent most of my time in Great Britain. That's Why? True. I was there in 1930, played Othello. Uh, so again, this is extremely important. At that time, I said for the public to see that I felt, I, I would explain it today in this light. We understand why many of my people have come to Oakland, to the vicinity from Mississippi and from the South. There have been migrations in the California, I understand today, from everywhere. But for many years, as you know, uh, many of my people have left the South because the conditions in the North were better. I felt the pressure so much in 1928 that instead of stopping in New York, I just went on to London. Hmm. That clear. And did you feel no pressure there in I the racial no, sense? I felt no, nowhere near the pressure. Now, that does not mean that you haven't the background of the English colonies and so forth. Yes, but I wonder. Pressure, but I say it's a difference between right here now and, say, let's say, the Mississippi of Mr. Eastland. You understand? Yes. This is quite different. So America is quite different. There are great differences. So I found England that much more of a difference, that's all. Mm -hmm. I, felt, I found Canada that way. When I was playing Othello some years ago, when we got to Toronto, the cast said to me after a week, well, Paul, why are you so different? The, uh, the, the play is, is much deeper. You seem to be freer. I said, that's quite true. <laughs> that's quite true. I'm in a country where, where there is no, this is not a question. I'm on a theater, on a stage with many other white actors. This is not a problem here. So obviously I feel freer. That's right. I'm a different. But I don't now. I don't uh, uh, feel the pressures that one would feel in the deep south all the time. But it would interest you to know, and I've put it, that I and I feel any Negro, if you were honest, would have to say that even in our democracy as at present, that he is never any one second unconscious of the fact that he is a black American or a colored American. He can never be unconscious of it in any part of the United States. Mr. Robeson, have you been back to England since the last war? Oh, yes, I was back in 49. Uh, the point I wanted in to 50. get at uh, is that when I was in England last year, I became aware of the large number of West Indians who are now That's about true. London, and I heard rather nasty overtones That's in right. my talks with uh, uh, some Englishmen that frightened me no question about, about a change that might take place in England. No, I, I, uh, again, if you want to go further, into the, nothing could be worse than South Africa. And I'm only saying, I put these things down. What is most important is that at the height, uh, having lived many years out and enjoying the, 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 certainly the height of, 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 uh, of success in Great Britain, that I decided that I must come back to my own country to struggle in this and to make the sacrifices that I have. That's the most important thing in this regard. And I am here. Now, wait, would you yes. spell this out again for me? Uh, you, you left England because England is not as attractive or oh, because no, you no. feel you have a greater mission in the United States? No, no, no. Let's don't get in that. There are many places in the world where personally it would be much easier to live than in the United States 
for an American Negro. In other words, and your commitment is definitely to what you feel you can do right. in this country. That's right. And Langston Hughes, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a book discussion before the book club in New York just a while ago, pointed out that every important Negro novelist, not only Richard Wright, but many others, that, that the great 95% of them live in Paris or somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the pressures personally are much simpler. And yet in the foreword of your book that I have before me, you quote Frederick Douglass as saying, a man is worked on by what he works on. That's right. He may carve out his circumstances, but his circumstances will carve him out as well. That's right. Is this part of the reason why you feel that you must be back in the United States? I made this decision some years ago. I say certainly that I spring essentially from here, uh, like you threw the other day about the Indians in North Carolina. If you recall, that was in Robeson County. Yes, I noticed that in the item. Now, this is a very interesting thing which I point out in my book and which explains a good deal, too, of how I feel. Now, I was born on the edge of Robeson County, and my father is a Robeson and was a Robeson because he was a slave, my own father, a slave, of the Scottish Robesons who still control Robeson County in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. so, my, so I approach these problems from a very close point. And so, but I have a home, and my people are tobacco workers and sharecroppers today on, that, on plantations in that county. But a part of that soil belongs to me. That, that's my roots. These are my roots in this country. On the other hand, also, I felt that... Uh, uh, so somewhere, the contributions that I had... Uh, that could make some contribution from my background traveling about the world. However, I never expected, I am quite willing to say, that I would be restricted from traveling. <laughs> yes. Well, tell me, Mr. Robeson, was your commitment to the political scene then largely as a result of uh, your feeling about your own people, or our own people, let's put it, yes. uh, or did it have other overtones of I political first, conviction? I, and first it starts uh, as an American Negro instead of my own people. The other great change is very constant in my mind. I was in the Welsh Valley, and the Welsh people sing very much like we do in, in the Negro people. Yes, I've heard Many them. of our songs, beautiful songs. And I was uh, one of the few outsiders who, who has sung at a Welsh Estithforth, their, their national festival which has gone on since the time of the Druids. And I went down in the mines with the workers, and they explained to me that, Paul, you may be successful here in England, but your people suffer like ours. We are poor people. And you belong to us. You don't belong to the, to the big weeks here in this country. And so I today feel as much at home in the Welsh Valley as I would in my own Negro section, any city in the United States. And I just did a broadcast by Transatlantic Cable to the Welsh Valley a few weeks ago. And here was the first understanding that the struggle of the Negro people or of any people cannot be by itself. That is the human struggle. And so I was attracted then to, to uh, met many members of the Labour Party, and my politics embraced also the common struggle of all oppressed peoples, including especially the working masses, specifically the laboring people of all the world. And that, that defines my philosophy. It's a joining one of uh, we are a working people, a laboring people, the Negro people. And there is a unity between our struggle and those of white workers in the South. I've had white workers shake my hand and say, Paul, we're fighting for the same thing. And so this defines my attitude towards socialism and toward many other things in the world. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land, that it should be a collective ownership in the interest of all. Is that a democratic socialism, or...? I would have to be a democratic socialism. There are many ways, however, to, 
to a struggle toward democracy, as I see that in a place like China, for example, today, the Soviet Union, many other places, or take our own problems uh, of Negroes. If we were free in the South tomorrow to carry our weight, to vote into everything, would we now look around and try to find the 10 billionaires among our people? Would we attempt to build them up, or would we try to answer the needs of the great millions of our people? And so I see other ways of life, socialism, as trying to solve the problems of millions and tens of millions of peoples at once in a way instead of the instead of we would start from the individual to the masses they start from the masses this way now there are two ways and there are difficulties each way i i have made the decision to join in a collective struggle and the reason that my personal uh, sacrifices mean very little uh, in the struggle in one way when you see the children of little rock what does what does not giving a few concerts mean if you can make some other contribution it's in that context. So nothing is perfect in the world. We're going toward it from different angles. I feel there's a great burden of proof on every society, on our own as well today. On our own as well. Mr. Robeson, some years ago, I was talking to a French member of the Communist Party. Yes. And in the course of our discussion, he said to me, uh, you, Mr. Winkler, are a Jeffersonian Democrat. Yes. You can afford it in your rich uh, uh, land. But in my land and in other lands, we must give up our freedom now to certain men in order to achieve freedom for our children in the future. This is an act of faith for me, he said, giving up my freedom now. Uh, do you find yourself sympathetic with... Uh, I don't think that is... Uh, I would put it quite differently. No, nor do I think that's any part of, uh, of any socialist philosophy or communist philosophy, as far as I know. Uh, that uh, we struck it during the, during the war under Roosevelt, for example. We had to give up many privileges. Uh, they're practically telling us we have to do that again. I mean, in any sort of a war economy, in England, England, for example, they have not eaten eggs almost for years and years because of certain pressures. And it seems to me in the socialist lands, the Soviet Union, China, and many places, that that's quite true. Uh, it's one thing to say today uh, that they don't have as... Uh, as shining apparel as we do, but they have uh, made tremendous scientific progress and within a one generation, so to speak, within 40 years, have become one of the most powerful countries in the world. Now, they've done it by great sacrifices and not by, to my mind, uh, uh, they feel that the country in one sense, the man in the street, uh, may not in every essence belong to him, but he feels it's much more his than, say, I do in Charleston, South Carolina, when one Amer Southern American Negro explained to me that I was in the state of our great plantations. I said, are you sure about that, our great plantations? I don't feel that they're my plantations. But in one sense, some of the people in socialist lands feel that the country does belong to them in a, a real sense. Now, there are, there are uh, uh, and as far as the basic uh, uh, concept of uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat and so forth, isn't it? Uh, I would say, again, bringing it back to our own history, there was, as we know, a dictatorship of the North over the South in the days following the Civil War. When that di dictatorship was removed, uh, the, the, the colored people reverted practically into a kind of servitude. I could have conceived of, uh, of a dictatorship over the South for quite a longer period, from my point of view, quite, quite frankly. So this is understandable. Yes. In your book, Mr. Robeson, uh, Here I Stand, you have a chapter entitled The Power of Negro Action. That's right. Uh, what are some of the specific 
acts, <laughs> which you recommend, and perhaps in the order of priority. Well, I say any in any Negro life, you would say that nobody. This is seems to be rather startling to many of my friends. Nobody would be startled, say, with taking the vote of the power of Italian action, or Polish action in Detroit, or Catholic action in New York, and so forth. I mean, that the vote would be a, a block, and the power of the Negro vote in the North in certain states. This is one very important aspect, uh, very clear. A kind of uh, uh, we have tremendous economic power in this uh, in this land today. Uh, there should be tremendous support of Negro business, of Negro banks, and so forth, of loan associations, and so forth. But the prime thing is, is that I'm convinced that... Yes. Take, taking this last yeah. uh, uh, illustration of yours, have you not found that uh, as Negro bankers uh, 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 become richer, that they grow away from uh, your people? No, I don't. I, I, I do they remain they, a part they, of they, they total remain, Negro action? There's no way for, as I said before, for any American Negro, however wealthy, however famous, to be anything at this period of our history at some point than an American Negro. If he oh, doesn't that know, I can if see. If he doesn't a, know it, he, he'll find it out. From a racial standpoint, yeah, Mr. Robeson, yeah. but from the political standpoint of socialism, which you were discussing a few mm -hmm. moments ago, surely a Negro capitalist... Uh, if he had the opportunity, would undoubtedly behave uh, according to the lights of his own... Uh, he has to, but he. Business. But I know many of the most wealthy, and they, often I feel that they don't help as much as they should, but he's forever conscious his children suffer the same things as the poor Negro's children, and at some point he finds a way to uh, to help. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a little different even there. But that is... You're, you're in other words, you feel it cracks through yeah. in a but different I, but way. But I'm really not... Uh, the, what I'm trying to say is that is that somewhere for our own dignity, I see, that is Africa, would you understand, Ghana today, unifying as a, with its own sort of, you know, nationalist strength, is that clear? Yes. Yeah. I feel in America, strange to say, especially in the South, that, uh, that uh, even with all the goodwill of uh, white liberals in the country, that it's very important for the Negro people to know what they want and to unify to do it often in a very simple case of fighting segregation, one group of Negroes can be drawn aside because of political pressure, other pressures. We should unify, too. We should unify. Yeah. I feel there's got to be a unity in order to integrate. That's what I feel. But I feel that we've, we, are not, we just can't integrate as individuals. Yes. But isn't the example of Liberia, uh, for example, a sorry example, uh, as it said against Ghana? Well, yes, because that's a very simple. The Firestone has taken care of that. It has been exploited to its hilt by Firestone rubber, if you don't know the facts. Yes, that's right. it still remains, then, right. an economic and question so has rather Ghana, than a racial so unity. Ghana, rather think. than a racial unity question. It remains an economic uh, uh, question no, in its no. fundamentals no, rather than the Ghana unity of also, the Negro people. Ghana has uh, the, the unity of its own nation, same as Chinese or Indians, very close to India. India's just, they have a, a culture and a history that has its own national characteristics. But what will prevent Ghana from becoming another Liberia? That's the... What do you mean? Well, Liberia today is pressures. completely controlled by Firestone, not by Africans. But I, but I, but I feel that Nkrumah is going to control the economy of Ghana, and at some time be strong enough to say to the European, either you sit here and acknowledge that we run our own country like Nehru, or else you go. But I don't see the day when Liberia can tell Firestone to do that. Oh, they're quite different. They're quite different. Liberia is a complete vassal state of American capital, finance capital, without question.
They have nothing to say, nothing whatsoever. What is your reaction to the passive resistance as practiced in Montgomery? Well, I think there was a magnificent movement, and nobody can I say there's nothing as far as the general thing of a nonviolent solution of the problem. This is the there could be no other solution within our uh, uh, within the frame of things today. I mean, this is a very important uh, contribution. Uh, uh, nobody could think of a violent solution unless the Negroes, unless somebody wanted to, 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 to ask somebody to be destroyed. I mean, that would be absurd. On the other hand, within that framework, I think that, that the Negro people have to be extremely militant and, and, and demand a little more than they are demanding today and to do a little more, not to do, to do, to do something, to do other things as well as pray, let me put it, as well as pray. Do you think there's been a change in the attitude of the Negro churches toward militant political and economic action, Mr. Rose? I think there has, because it's history, you know. Take Frederick Douglass. I belong to the AME Zion Church. Uh, there's one in this area. And uh, Douglass was a part of that church. Harriet Tubman, who formed the Underground Railroad, who was called the Moses of our people. They sang Go Down Moses when she came into the South to free the slaves. And Harriet Tubman. And we have a tradition of tremendous... Uh, consistent speaking out, you know, for our rights. Like in the whole civil rights struggle. I mean by militant, letting uh, people know that you, that you want to be free like anybody else. And I think the churches, however, a lot of the responsibility still rests upon our churches because that's where so many of our people, uh, you know, go. They have tremendous influence still. Mr. Robeson, do you think your artistry as a singer and uh, actor have suffered because <laughs> of your involvement in political action are profited. They have not. I feel that they have profited. They've only suffered when they've suffered by the fact that because of my political views, which I certainly did not expect in a democracy, that I've been prevented from exercising my craft. However, I've kept singing all through the years. Uh, you may be able to test it pretty soon. I just made a recording the other day for Vanguard, which they felt was superior to any records I have ever made. My voice is still in fine shape. I've been in the area. And as far as Othello, I've worked on it. I feel I've just been invited to play at, Str at Stratford-on-Avon, uh, the Shakespeare Memorial Theater in England, in, as you say, in Pericles, to play the part of Gower. And I would certainly do Othello at some point in London, and I feel I would give a better performance. Uh, I feel that in every... And I, I've got a lot of things here which we won't be able to get to in my music. Comparing the folk music of the world, I would say that my interest in my art has deepened just no end in the last years. And I've become interested in the music of Bartok, of Mussorgsky, many folk things, the, the, the unity of the folk music of the world, which has sprung from my political conviction that all people should be unified. I have seen it expressed in their music, and I do a program, which of all the songs of all the peoples in the world, suggesting that we are all one human family, it all comes to that. So I feel that basically that it has deepened my... Uh, my on the other hand, I have never separated my work as an artist, from my work as a human being. I've always put it even more strongly that, to me, my art is always a weapon. It's got to be good art. Othello was a weapon in racial relations, or, or at least showing that uh, we can do some things, too. I played football. My father explained to me that, well, a fellow hit me, I couldn't hit him back because they'd say we were bad and savage, so I had to stand and be knocked all around. Uh, I had to do well in my studies. So... I've never been able to divorce one thing from the other. Uh, and luckily, I don't uh, sing the kind of songs that may, you're here and you hit the high uh, 
whatever it is, the high uh, B flat and the high this and the high that, I sing songs that express very much the emotions of different peoples, like the Welsh, the Scotch, the Negro, Chinese, Russian, and so forth. Well, what is the present state of play on this passport business? You were talking about your British invitations. Yes. Uh, how are you going to get there? Well, luckily, I think at this point, the basic case is before the Supreme Court. It's the case of Rockwell Kent, uh, contending that the which the whole, all the cases revolve around, that when the State Department put in its administrative necessities that one sign a non-communist affidavit, whether or not he is, was, or so forth, that this is a violation of constitutional rights. Uh, just wasn't just any, any American now has to sign this, uh, this particular proposal. And this is before the Supreme Court. And in its present temper, uh, it seems to me that the court might easily decide. And this is what you refuse to do. You refuse to sign such a document. Oh, yeah, completely refuse. This is a complete investigation. Did you, you know, did you murder your wife yesterday or, you know, the day before? Are you, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? This is no, but my political opinions are my own business, you know. This is a complete... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a rare archival interview uh, with uh, Paul Leroy Robeson, Sr., and uh, that interview was done in 1958 uh, in the Bay Area of California. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we've been paying tribute to the birthday, the 124th uh, birthday of uh, Paul Robeson today. And, of course, um, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website uh, at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music of the legendary Eric Dolphy. This is taken uh, from an album entitled Far Cry. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.